Hi, and welcome to the second location. You're here with me, Holly, and today we are going to talk about one of the most infamous unsolved crimes, the murder of four young girls in an Austin, Texas yogurt shop. And this case is unique because it was once considered solved, but DNA testing that was not available at the time of the trials led to the release of both of the convicted men. But first, I want to tell you about the horrific crime that these young men were accused of committing. And I want to talk about the victims, four wholesome, country-loving teenage girls that were brutally murdered. On December 6, 1991, police responded to a request for assistance at a local yogurt shop, the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. It was located in an Austrian strip mall and on fire. Because the time of night, it was almost midnight, the firemen had assumed the shop was empty and immediately set about putting out the fire. But once inside the building, firemen literally stumbled onto the burnt bodies of four teenage girls. And immediately, it was recognized as a murder scene when the firemen noted that the girls' bodies had been stacked on top of each other in a pile and the girls appeared to be nude. First, I want to talk about the four victims because while victims are often overlooked when people talk about murders, this situation is absolutely magnified when there is an overturned conviction. Attention turns to the wrongly accused. And while this attention is wholly justified, I mean, hell, these people went to a prison for crime they didn't commit. It takes the focus away from the original victims. And I say original victims because it's important to remember that the unjustly convicted are victims too. Just a different type of victim. Not a victim of a crime, but a victim of an unbalanced justice system. The perfect example of this is the West Memphis Three. Everyone always talks about the three teenagers tried for the murders and the three little boys, Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers, are almost forgotten. It's almost as if they're a side note to their own deaths. Ironically, outside of the victims' families and loved ones, I think the people that care the most about those murders being solved is Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly, because that's the only way that their names will ever be completely cleared, because there are still asshats out there that think these three guys are guilty. So, we do have a wrongful conviction in the yogurt shop murders, and while we will talk about the accused, I am also going to talk about the victims. A lot. And if you don't like that, then honestly, this probably isn't the podcast for you. Because true crime as entertainment is a dicey topic. And I think the best way to justify one's interest in horrific crimes is to also remember the victim, to focus on their life and who they were, and not merely on their death. This case has four murdered teenagers. And I won't always say this. I will only say it when it's true. So then it has meaning. But these girls were light bulbs. And you know what I'm talking about here. These four girls are the type of daughters that you want as your own. The type of girls that you are happy that your son is dating. And yes, and yes, that does make their deaths more tragic. Because it is sadder when terrific people die. I honestly can't understand why that is an unpopular opinion, but it is. Two of the girls were good friends and employees of the yogurt shop. And they had worked the closing shift together that night. Now, one of the other girls was the younger sister of one of the teenage workers. She went to the yogurt shop with her sister that night to help them close up the shop. And then she brought along a younger friend with her. And the younger friend and the younger sister were going to have a little sleepover together that night. So they're going to get a lift home with the older sister as well. Now, Jennifer Harbison, she's 17 years old and she worked at the yogurt shop. And with her that night at the shop was her 15-year-old sister, Sarah. Now, although Jennifer was the older sister, she 
she was absolutely tiny, at only five feet tall and weighing a whopping 86 pounds. She was always on the go, always in motion. She was a runner on the varsity track team. She had attended Catholic middle school. I believe that daughters had converted when their mother remarried, but the girls, they enjoyed mass and Catholic school, but the both of the girls... Jennifer and Sarah have been really excited to go to public school. And I can understand this because if your Catholic school that you go to is very small, a lot of times you don't have all the activities available to you that you would have at a bigger public school. Now, both of Barbara's daughters were murdered that night in the yogurt shop. Her only children. Jennifer was a senior and she had a boyfriend named Sammy was also a senior at her high school. She drove a Chevy S10 pickup truck that her dad, Mike Harbison, had just bought brand new for her. And she had gotten the job at the yogurt shop to help him make the loan payments. Jennifer drove her younger sister, Sarah, around frequently. That was part of the agreement with her dad when he got her the truck. So Sarah always had a ride to and from school. And I have to say, that's, I mean, come on, that's a good kid taking a job to help out with car payments, toting your kid's sister around all the time. And that's what's hard about this case. These are good kids. Farm girls that didn't even live on a farm. They just loved that life of animals, the outdoors, and none of the girls were afraid of hard work. Jennifer and Sarah's parents, they were divorced and her mother had remarried, but her birth father, he was very active in his daughter's lives. And it just seems like a very nice family. Barbara had her first daughter when she was young. So it was one of those situations where the mom and the daughters were almost like sisters as well as mother and daughter. Although I have to say, Barbara was clearly in charge and she raised her daughters to be kind and caring young ladies. But she really, really respected her children, which I think it is just one of the most important things in a child's life is for them to feel respected. And one of her daughters once told her that she didn't actually know as much as her mother thought she did. What kid admits this? But Barbara held her children in a high regard and the girls knew that. And I think it just reflected in their personalities and their behavior. Now, Jennifer's little sister, Sarah, while younger, she was a little bit bigger than her big sister. Sarah was a beautiful girl. And I'm not trying to imply that Sarah was overweight. It is more about that Jennifer was just so darn small that anyone looks a little bigger beside her. I think Sarah might have been, you know, understandably a little bit sensitive about this. But it's really just a teenage insecurity. It's hard to be the larger sibling, even when you still look lovely. So Sarah went to Lanier High School along with her big sister, where she excelled as an athlete. She played both volleyball and basketball and was a JV cheerleader. She also belonged to the Future Farmers of America. It's called the FFA. Actually, all the victims belong to that. It's, um... It's like where I live, we have more focus on 4-H, but they're very similar. It's like an agricultural group where you learn about farming and raising animals and you do, you know, certain things with livestock and you enter competitions like raising pigs and all that type of thing. But these girls, all of them, were super into it. Also, both sisters, like, there's a real diversity here. She's a young gal. She's a student athlete. She's super into farming. And she is also on student council. I mean, these gals are doing it all. But the two sisters, they were raising lambs for an upcoming farm show. And the sisters went to the barn. See, this is the thing. These kids don't live on a farm. So a local farmer, they, he donates for these kids that don't have, um, you don't live on farms. You don't have all the stuff you need to be taking care of these animals for the FFA. So he donated his barn for kids to use for, for their um, livestock. And they have to go to this barn twice a day to take care of their animals. And they were very responsible young ladies on the day of their deaths. They went to the barn to take care of the lambs. 
feed them and Muckus dolls after they ate breakfast and again on their way home from school. Now, Jennifer's friend, Eliza Thomas, she was also 17 years old, and she had started working at the yogurt shop first. And she thought it was such a fun job that she recommended that her best friend, Jennifer, apply there too, and she just thought you know, she's having a great time there. Before this, I think Sarah had been working at an Albertsons, and I can see how working at a yogurt shop with your best friend would be much funner than just being a cashier at a grocery store. That's I did it before, and it's mind-numbing. So anyway, Eliza's parents were also divorced, and she lived with her mother while her younger sister, Sonora, oh my gosh, isn't that name just musical? Put it in a song. Well, Sonora stayed with the girl's father. And she was staying with the father the week that um, Eliza died. It seems like the girls sometimes switched between their parents' homes. And both parents lived in the same general area. Um, the dad with his, like his second wife, he lived very close to where the yogurt shop was. The parents had originally shared custody of the two girls, but Eliza was allowed to choose which parent she wanted to live with when she turned 14. At first, she went to live with her father, but after a while, Eliza decided to go stay with her mother, Maria. But like I said, they live in the same general town. They see each other all the time. It seems like whenever Eliza is working, her dad stops in to visit her. Her sister rides her bike over to visit her. You know, they're they're in touch all the time. This isn't, there's no strained family relations in any of these groups. Like you hear divorce and you're like, ah, but it's not, you know, as divorce goes, this seems like things are working out for people. And like all the other girls, she was a very active member of the Future Farmers of America. And she was raising a pig for competition. Now, her pig had become ill and required two injections daily. Now, Eliza's mother went to help her with that pig in the morning. But Maria, her mom, she just didn't have that passion for farm animals that Eliza had. And she mucked out the stall while someone else helped Eliza give the shot to the pig. Honestly, God, I, could, I don't know if I could ever give a shot to a pig. I mean, I don't know what size pig we're talking about here, but I mean, it sums up Maria, doesn't She's like, I'd rather muck out a stall than deal with this pig. <laughs> but anyway, Eliza had raised a pig that won a ribbon previously. So she was pretty hopeful that this year's pig would do well. So all of the girls were very involved in FFA and seem completely animal orientated. But it's amazing to me that none of them lived on a farm. I just thought that was so interesting. It seems like these girls are drawn to animals and farm life, even though they don't live that kind of life at home. Now, little Amy Ayers, she's the youngest of the girls. She had lived on a ranch before when she was little, but it's not like these girls were growing up on a farm. They just loved that lifestyle with animals and cowboy hats and country music. Now, I remember this time. It's the 1990s. So it's Garth Brooks, George Strait, Western shirts and big belt buckles, horse lovers. I had a lot of these gals like that that I went to high school with. It was like a movement of sorts, but I have to imagine like everything else, it was even bigger in Texas. Now, Eliza, she drove a 1971 Carmen Gia that was bright green. I have heard numerous podcasters talk about what an ugly vehicle that is. And I just, I don't know why it irritated me so much. I think it's so quirky and absolutely cute. And she loved it. So don't have to go poo-pooing on something she loves. I think it's a super cool looking car. And most of her income from the yogurt shop went to the upkeep on her vehicle. Like I said, it's a 71. Mm. You know, vehicles get older. They cost you. And she really loved that car and thought it was especially perfect for her because her birthstone was emerald and matched the bright green color of the car. She knew how to weld and did a lot of the maintenance for her car herself. She could do like small engine repair. I mean, honest to gosh, I am impressed. I mean, I don't know how to do any of that stuff. Like, I don't even think I could learn. I mean, she asked for car parts for Christmas. 
Eliza seemed to work more hours at the shop than some of the other teen employees. A lot of the other teenagers worked mainly on weekends, but Eliza picked up weekday shifts as well. And this could be because of her mother's lifestyle. Eliza's mother worked as an artist's assistant, and she seems to be like a more free-spirited type. And Eliza's friends seem to think that Eliza liked to work extra hours to try to help out with a little extra money for her household. And that just puts a tear to my eye. This girl dies in such a horrific way. And she was just trying to do her best to help out her mom by having her own money so she wouldn't be a financial burden. It, it hits you, right? While Eliza proclaimed that she wanted to be a veterinarian, I think all the girls said they wanted to be a veterinarian, her mother thought that Eliza would be a writer someday. Now, Eliza was a great reader, often reading more than one book at a time which, honest to God, I think could be confusing. She also is a big fan of fellow Texan Willie Nelson, which I just love because I remember the 1990s cowgirls loving contemporary country, while Liza loved the original, you know, OG country music. The girl had good taste, in my opinion. Now, while her mom thought Eliza might be a writer, I think it might have been wishful thinking on her part because her mother seems so drawn to the creative side. Her dad thought that she would have become a veterinarian someday as she just had a lifelong love of animals. And like I said, her dad lived just a few blocks from the yogurt shop and Eliza's little sister, Sonora, they frequently she'd hop on her bike and ride over to visit her big sister while she worked. And Eliza was really a particularly striking girl when one of the customers in the shop describes which girl waited on her? She said the girl with the beautiful eyes. And looking at her picture, you knew she was talking about Eliza. And I thought it was just very sweet when Jennifer Harberson's mom, Barbara, explained that her daughter had thought that Eliza was the prettiest girl she'd ever seen with her big eyes and long brunette hair. And I can see that because both Jennifer and Sarah, they're like American beauties. You know, blonde hair, big smiles. But Eliza... It looks like she takes after her mom a little bit, who had um, was Italian. So it's a different look than what Jennifer and Sarah had. And I think sometimes you're like, oh, I like that. <laughs> but it wasn't with jealousy. There was just friendly admiration. And you don't see that too much in teenage girls. It's refreshing and speaks to both Jennifer's maturity and the strength of the girl's friendship. So it's Jennifer and Eliza, two 17-year-olds that were the employees in the shop, and the younger girls... That will be Sarah and Amy. They were just there to help the older girls close the shop that night and get a lift home for a sleepover. The younger girls had hung out at the mall that night, you know, as one did in the 1990s. It would be the only time they ever went to the mall without an adult. And when I originally typed that sentence, I wrote the first time they went to the mall alone. But then I realized that it was the first and last time all in one. When the mall was set to close, big sister Jennifer drove her truck over to pick up the younger girls at nine o'clock. And she brought them back to the yogurt shop. The plan was for the girls to hang out at the shop, eat some pizza, and then help clean up. And Jennifer would drive the younger girls home with her for the, the sleepover at Jennifer and Sarah's house. Now, the last girl I'm going to talk about is Amy Ayers. She was 13 years old and best friends with Sarah. But because they went to different schools, see, there's an age difference between the girls of a couple years. They didn't get to see each other as often as they liked, so the sleepover was going to be a real treat for the girls. See, Amy was two years younger than Sarah, but it didn't really matter because the girls had so much in common that the age difference didn't really affect them too much. And Amy's mother described Amy and Sarah as inseparable whenever they'd go to like a livestock or farm show. 
little Amy would sell pigs at farm shows that she had raised. Well, Amy's mom said that she never had to worry about the girls when they were together. They would laugh and have a ball just giggling away, but never, ever did they ever get into any trouble. And I actually saw a little video of Sarah, Jennifer, and Amy together at a livestock show, and I think little Amy was wearing Wrangler jeans. Just classic cowgirl attire. And in some of the videos, she looks like sheepishly shy about being on camera. It's really very sweet. It is really. It's like, it's touching because she just seems like she doesn't want the attention, but she deserves it. Now, Amy had spent some of her childhood growing up on a ranch and she learned to ride a horse when she was three. Yeah, when she was three. I can't. I was proud of my kids because they could swim. Honest to gosh. Three riding a horse. She was a true cowgirl, even more so, I think, than the other girls. She wore a cowboy hat and even would leash up her pig, one of her pigs, to take it out for a stroll. I mean, it's, I'm serious. That's what I'm telling you. These kids are so darn wholesome. Every wall in her bedroom had a picture of George Strait on it. She was an animal lover, especially cats and horses, and she too wanted to be a veterinarian. And she was actually granted special permission to join the FFA at only 13. She was too young to join, but an exception was made because she was such an exceptional young lady. Now, Amy's entire family, they all wear Western garb regularly, and it seems like this cowboy lifestyle just enjoyed by the whole family. Now, Amy was a reserved young gal. The idea of having to undress after gym class in front of the other girls made her sick. That's what her dad said about her. And I relate to this in a way because every year before my, like you have to go get an annual physical. When I was a young person, I got super nervous that that would be the year where they would make me um, wear a paper dress in the exam room. So <laughs> Amy was even shyer than me because I would get myself all psyched up. Oh, wow, that's me so nervous. I could change after gym, but I didn't want a grown doctor see me in a backless gown. So I get where she was coming from, you know? So Amy packed her things for the sleepover in a Jiminy Cricket bag, which she tossed in Jennifer's truck when she was picked up by the, the sisters that evening. See I'm talking about? These are kids. I know she's 13 years old, but her bag was a Jiminy Cricket bag. That night, Amy wore a typical Amy outfit, western shirt, a belt with a large heart-shaped buckle that she had borrowed from her mother, and she borrowed her older brother's leather bomber jacket to complete the look. And I love that this was a close family that shared clothes, I mean, even between brother and sister. I thought it was only me and my brother that did that. See, we traded starter sweatshirts back and forth in the early 90s. So I get this with the bomber jacket. Because those things were popular. That night at the mall, the girls would bump into a few school friends and have a nice time just browsing at the mall. Neither girl had much money with them that night. And I think for these young gals, this would be exciting. It's not every day that a 13-year-old gets to go to the mall with a friend and no parents. The goal was more about hanging out and spotting other friends than shopping. Before her shift started, Jennifer and Sarah had, like I said, driven over to Amy's to pick her up. And then Jennifer dropped the girls off at the Teen Hotspot, North Cross Mall. Then Jennifer drove up to the strip mall alone where the yogurt shop was located and parked beside Eliza's funky green car. It's important to note that the yogurt shop was in an area that was considered safe. I mean, one business in the strip mall had a broken door lock that the business didn't even bother to repair. But it's also important to note that all the other businesses near the yogurt shop in that strip mall closed at nine. So the girls were virtually alone with no adults to help them after nine. And the yogurt shop didn't close until 11, which I'm just going to say is fudging ridiculous. Who the hell is buying yogurt at 1030? 
I mean, I, I would even give them stay open until 10, maybe. But I don't like the idea if you're going to have teenagers, young people, man in the station by themselves. I don't like the idea that there's nobody around to help them when something goes wrong. That night, the first visible sign of trouble was smoke coming from the strip mall. Now, a patrol officer was the first to notice the fire, and he called it in at 1148 when he first saw smoke, and he follows the smoke to its source where he saw the owner of the, there's a party supply shop right next to the yogurt shop, and that guy's out motioning to the police officer. And the officer told the party shop owner to get the heck out of his store and get to safety. He complied and moved his vehicle to make room for the incoming fire trucks. The fire department had to use a crowbar to pry open the front door as it was locked tight. The firefighters had tried to open the door before resorting to the crowbar, of course. It's the old firefighter rule of try before you pry. So we know for a fact that the front door was locked at the time of the murders. After entering the back room, the firefighters would eventually find out that the back door was unlocked and even slightly ajar. Now, visibility was really bad inside the shop. Smoke was everywhere and steam. The firefighters had to crawl into the shop. And as they crawled, I mean, they eventually bumped into the cashier counter before they continued to the back room looking for the source of the fire, you know, looking for the active flames. The source of the fire was ultimately located in the back room. And the firefighters began to put out the flames, spraying gallons upon gallons of water onto what they didn't know right then was a crime scene. Putting out a fire with water creates steam, and this makes visibility even worse. Once the flames are controlled, they're going to need to create a ventilation point to get some smoke and steam out of there so they can see, and I would assume that's going to be the back door. And actually, there already was a really heavy amount of steam in that back room before the firemen, you know, turn on the hoses, as it was later determined that a PVC water pipe that was in the ceiling had actually melted. That's how hot this got. A pipe in the ceiling melted and that water just started raining down on the back room. And that was before the firefighters even got there. And this would go further to explain just exactly how poor visibility was in that back room. Without being able to see much, the firefighters continued on and saw that the biggest flames were along the south wall of the storage room. Working to put out the flames, one of the firefighters alerted the other because in the darkness, his flashlight had illuminated what he thought was a foot. Now, as he steps back to get a better look at the foot, he bumped into something behind him. It was the arm of a second body. One of the firefighters alerted the fire chief. He said the victims were nude and the rescue squad was told not to enter the building. They find Jennifer, Sarah, and Eliza. They're together. They are very clearly deceased. Now, Amy, they don't see her at first. And there is a chance that she is actually living when the firefighters first enter the shop. But like I said, they don't notice Amy at first. So immediately the firefighters have realized that this was a crime scene that needed to be preserved because, you know, the bodies appeared to be nude and some of them were stacked on top of each other. The girls' bodies, they're going to remain in the yogurt shop as the fire was extinguished. And they're going to stay there for a period of time while evidence is collected as well. Now, homicide detectives were summoned to the scene. And the homicide detective that would be assigned to lead the investigation, John Jones, he rushes to the scene with a camera crew in tow because, oddly enough, that night, he was being recorded for a local show that was doing a report on crime in Texas. Now, John Jones, first homicide officer on the scene, and he takes the lead in the case along with his partner, Mike Huckabee. Now, Jones was a black man who had grown up in Dallas, which is far more racially diverse than Austin. And within the police force, 
he did face racial bias. Okay, you're, this story is just too much. When a fellow officer used the N-word in front of Jones, the guy was shocked that Jones might be upset by this, saying, I wasn't talking about him. <sighs> I got the feeling that Jones may have felt like he just didn't fit in in Austin. And it very well could be the case. And this murder, this case, it impacted Jones tremendously, even contributing to his divorce and impacting his health. Jones became very close to the victim's families, but I think he always kept a clear head. He never tried to close the case for the sake of closing the case. He didn't want to just pin these murders on somebody. He wanted to get the actual killers. And I have a lot of respect for Jones. In a department with officers willing to do anything to get a conviction, he seems to be a standout as a guy with a cool head and a sense of morals. Now, an arson investigator, Melvin Stahl, he arrives on the scene and he determines that the fire started on the south wall of the storage room near the stainless steel storage shelves that held cleaning supplies at approximately 11.42. That's just six minutes before the first patrol officer had noticed smoke and called for firefighters and 39 minutes after Eliza had opened up the cash register for the final time, bringing up a no sale at 11.03. The total time of the attack on the girls appears to have taken place in less than 40 minutes. Now, you're going to hear a lot of people when they go over this case, what was the motive behind this? People go in there to do this, to, to hurt these girls, or was the motive robbery and something happened? And a lot of people focus on the duration, how long they're in there is 40 minutes. And um, it seems like it's a long time. The killers did a lot in that amount of time. People are saying it's so long that it shows the point wasn't robbery. The point was harming the girls. And I can see where people are coming from on that. But keep in mind, there are no other businesses open near there. This isn't in broad daylight where it's smash and grab. I think these killers knew no one else is around. We can take a little bit more time. Now, Austin is a decent sized city. But really, are they equipped to handle a scene like this? Austin was a little smaller and they had a lower crime rate than it does today. And, you know, Jones, he just wanted to call in the Texas Department of Public Safety for forensic analysis of the scene because Austin was really only set up for basic stuff, basically like fingerprinting. And while the um, DPS lab was new, it was the only option available to the Austin police. Although I do think they could have sent stuff out to the FBI. I definitely think the FBI would have been willing to test things here. But I think within Texas, that was his only option. To speak about the severity of the fire, I don't want to go into too much detail because it's heartbreaking and, in all honesty, largely unnecessary. But I will say that the fire burnt extremely hot. Extremely. Steel shelving units bent and rungs melted off metal ladders. The fire was contained, but that was due largely to the quick response by firefighters. The intensity of the fire was likely due to the fire progressing to cleaning solvent and other highly flammable items like styrofoam cups, which would have immediately increased the fire's intensity. And I think it's interesting because I don't think everybody always thinks of styrofoam as being something that would really, that's so flammable and really get a fire going, but it will. <laughs> it really will. And uh, the disgusting thing about styrofoam is when it melts, it's basically like napalm. The arson investigator agrees with Jones about calling in the DPS to assist. But when Jones talks about calling in Charles Meyer from the Department of Treasury's Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the arson investigator balks, thinking that calling in a federal agency could piss off the local investigators. But Jones really thinks that they need help and access to the resources the federal agencies can provide. And I agree with Jones here, but I also don't know if this is the department that I would call. I mean, there is going to be firearms involved in this crime. So, okay, you know, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. But I think part of it is 
that I think Jones has a connection and has worked with this Charles Meyer before. And I think that's why he thinks maybe we'll work with this guy. We've worked with him before. He does good work. You know, he's already got some connections there. So maybe that will go over better. Because really, personally to me, I would see requesting assistance of the FBI before alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. But really, you know, I'm not in this, so. But my, the real point of this is Jones sees that this is like a little bit out of Austin's depth. And he wants help. And I'm telling you what, it's a big person that realizes I'm not doing this on my own. All these other people, these Texans are all hat, you know, sometimes. It's, it's like really pisses you off. You know, you don't, you don't got all the brains just because you got a big hat on. And I, I'm not trying to just say just Texas because it's a police problem. But I don't know, maybe the hat just really cheeses me off. It's hard been watching that Uvalde shit and the police and it's just like, you're so disgusted with them and like they're wearing like high heel cowboy boots and the fucking ridiculous hat. I mean, just, I don't know. When I dislike somebody, I find things about them that I dislike that I probably wouldn't if I had actually originally liked that individual. So maybe I should take back my attack on cowboy hats. I mean, I own one. I'm just saying, I hate this. Why can't we all just get along? It's the goal is to solve this case. Someone killed four teenage girls and set them on fire. I don't care if someone's like, I don't want to bring in federal agents. Why? When you say I don't want help, to me, it, I'm hearing, I know everything. I don't need help. And you sound like a child. And sometimes when they all people always say it's rivalry between departments and people want to be in charge. But sometimes deep down, I think the goal is just to rack up overtime while the investigation goes nowhere. Because that's what happens. You get massive amounts of overtime. You call an FBI and have other people working on it. It's more manpower, less overtime. Eh, no. Yeah, I know everybody says it's, you know, competitive dick swinging that causes all of these turf battles. But what if it really is just a bunch of gritty assholes looking for time and a half? I mean, it really could just be that. Personally, I think this case needs an all-hands-on-deck mentality, not petty jurisdictional jealousies. But eventually, the arson investigator agrees that maybe federal help on the case, you know, would be a good thing. But interdepartmental rivalry seems to be going like really strong in Austin because the office of the medical examiner seems to butt heads with the Austin homicide police officers, which is really weird. The medical examiner has a real hang up on possession of the body and he seems to be really upset about DPS being called in and delaying the removal of the body. Like he repeatedly says things like the body is mine and he's like threatening to remove the girl's bodies from the crime scene at any time. You know, just disrupting the investigation and the processing of evidence. But he's like stomping around and pouting and I don't know how you can take the murder of four teenage girls and make it about you. But this asshat seems to be able to do that. Honestly, that's why I said like there's no, words aren't can't put in like how odd this is because honestly I have never heard of such a thing. The medical examiner typically has to work closely with homicide detectives. They are really part of the same team. This is the case basically everywhere but I wonder if this is just like one neurotic asshole that like to control things that worked in the medical examiner's office in Austin at some point and just you know it infected the whole office's attitude. I mean that person might not even be there any longer but the bad attitude remains. It just, I can't explain any other way why someone would be talking about, like, these are my bodies. You know, I can remove them at any time I want. I guess legally what he's saying is correct. It's stupid and childish. And when he's talking about these, these are mine, n n no. Yes, 
you have the legal duty and the legal right to take these bodies and to process them for evidence. I get that. But when I keep saying bodies, these are people. These are loved ones. And this guy's attitude towards the deceased, to me, is just screaming that this man is, he's in the wrong line of work. Because, yeah, I guess this guy doesn't have people skills, so he thought dealing with the deceased might be better. But as an ME, you also have to deal with people. And you have to be able to treat the deceased with respect. And this guy isn't able to do either, it looks like it to me. But anyway, approval was given and federal agencies and Texas DPS are called in. All the investigators on this scene agreed that it would be best to process the evidence on the bodies, including taking DNA swabs at the scene. But this really pisses off that medical examiner, which I just don't understand. The fire and water would have damaged the scene so much. You would have lost so much evidence through those two things. You just have to try and make the best of it and salvage what evidence you can. But this medical examiner, something is just off that he thinks the priority at this crime scene is him. So anyway, this asshat, the medical examiner, he arrives before Texas DPS and he's told about the plans to process the bodies at the scene. And he, honest to God, throws like a little fit. But they try to calm him down and he agrees to wait to remove the bodies. But he remained at the scene, hovering over everybody, criticizing, bitching the night away. And his bad attitude likely contributed to the first major mistake of the investigation. And it's made during the autopsy, which I will get to later. Now, this is going to be tough for investigators. Not only would the fire destroy evidence... But the thousands of gallons of water needed to put out the fire would destroy a lot of the evidence. Basically, the fire didn't get to. So basically what I'm saying here is what the fire didn't destroy, the water would. And the firefighters themselves could have accidentally altered the scene. As they entered in complete darkness, I mean, they're totally unaware that there were four murdered teenagers in that yogurt shop. And uh, there's no blame here being put on the firefighters because they were doing what they needed to do and getting that fire put out. They had no idea what was going on at that scene. And I think... The finding of four bodies at that yogurt shop was completely unexpected and justifiably so. I mean, it's nearing midnight. It's completely reasonable for the firefighters to have thought that the shop was empty and that it had been closed probably for hours. So, you know, they go in there, they're thinking this is a kitchen fire or an electrical fire or something like that. And seriously, that's what I would have thought as well. I just want to say I keep emphasizing that I think it's perfectly reasonable that the firefighters had assumed that the shop was empty that night. First off, because of the time. It's almost midnight. And second off, they're thinking it's just a kitchen fire. And I keep emphasizing this because I heard this one podcast where this guy is just guffawing his way through his description of the crime. And he says, like, the firefighters, oh, yeah, real smart. It's going to be a kitchen fire. A fire in a yogurt shop. Like an idiot. Like, I, I mean, it just really annoyed me because... All kitchen fires don't start from an oven or from a stovetop. I mean, there was a time period when a large portion of kitchen fires were caused by refrigerators. Because it used to be your refrigerator had a real long cord. And that cord could get bundled up underneath your refrigerator, overheat, and cause a fire. It'd cause an electrical fire. Not a fire from your stove, but an electrical fire. That is why all your refrigerators today have those extremely short cords. There has to be an outlet right beside where your refrigerator is. That wasn't always the case. I hate it when people are laughing and mocking other people, but they're really just showing their own stupidity. Yeah, you can have a kitchen fire without having an oven, shithead. Now, the processing of this crime scene was not ideal. And you get the feeling that investigators may have been a little bit out of their depth. Things were overlooked at the scene. They didn't create a log of who was present at the scene. Investigators did not wear booties. The bathrooms were not dusted for prints. 
the trash was not examined and retained, and the investigators did not search the premises while following a grid system, which is standard. The dumpster out back? Someone lifted the lid and looked in. Nothing was processed from the dumpster. And this garbage thing, that's important because that weirdo that bought a Sprite, that cup or can could have been in the trash can. I mean, we know what drink he was having. And with DNA and genealogy today, we could know who that guy is. Because this is almost exactly what happened in the case known as the Brown's Chicken Massacre of 1993. It was solved in 2002 when one of the perpetrator's ex-girlfriends, she implicates her ex-boyfriend and one of his friends in this mass murder of seven people that went down at a fast food restaurant. While searching the crime scene, investigators noted that the garbage can was almost empty as the bag had recently been changed as the workers, they were preparing to close the restaurant. This is just like the yogurt shop, isn't it? Well, the police collected the contents of the garbage bin and retained this evidence of partially eaten chicken in a freezer for years. Once the ex-girlfriend implicated someone, DNA testing was conducted on that chicken. It matched the ex-boyfriend's friend and arrests were made and both guys were convicted. Sure, it took an ex-girlfriend to rat on them, but those chicken scraps really sealed the deal. I mean, one man's trash is another man's crucial evidence in solving the murder of seven people. Doesn't just roll off the tongue, does it? But let's just say in Austin, mistakes were made in the processing of the murder scene. But many people chalk these mistakes up to a lack of experience with arson homicides. But I mean, collect more evidence, not less. The ladder that was missing its top rungs, that was not retained, nor were the shelves where it was believed that the fire started, and the lock on the back door. This is the biggest piece of evidence that we need, and it's gone missing. These are things that investigators could have come back to analyze as technology advances. I'm also curious to know, how much did they fingerprint? I mean, the back room, I don't know how much you could fingerprint back there. But the front, where the tables are, I wonder how much fingerprinting was done. Because you could tell that the girls had started wiping down tables because if you look at pictures of the scene, if you've ever worked at a restaurant or been at a restaurant at closing where they do the chairs up on the table thing, they were doing that. And there was one table left there that still had chairs down. So I would say all the chairs up, she'd wipe those tables off. There'd be no fingerprints or anything to get there. But that table still had chairs on the ground. There could be prints on that table. And the mistakes don't end there at the crime scene. Once the bodies are back at the morgue, the medical examiner failed to test the bodies for evidence of an accelerant. And this testing is standard procedure in arson cases. But honestly, this test, it could have been done at the scene. And perhaps the ME thought it was done at the scene because other processing was done there. And I want to point out, this is not the same medical examiner that was at the scene. This is a separate one. So he doesn't know exactly what all was done at the scene. I just think people throw a lot of blame in these unsolved cases without taking a lot of responsibility on themselves. Honestly, the ME should have asked exactly what was collected at the scene. But at the least, do more, like I said, not less. Or the police that were present at the autopsy could have mentioned it. But none of these girls' bodies were tested for accelerant, and the hostility between the ME and the police prevented them from talking to each other during the autopsy, even though there were police present while these autopsies were being conducted. But the toxic situation at the crime scene had trickled down into the medical examiner's room. This major oversight for not testing for accelerant will come into play when four suspects are arrested years later and some of the accused describe pouring lighter fluid on the girls bodies to start the fire. 
Now, while the autopsies are being performed, back at the crime scene, a shell casing was retrieved from a clogged drain under the sink near where Amy's body had been located. It was a 380. It will be determined during the autopsies that all victims were shot in the head once with a 22, and only Amy sustained a second shot to the head when she survived that first shot. And the second shot is with a 380. So everyone else is shot with a 22, including Amy. But Amy has that second shot to the head that ultimately that will kill her. And it's with a different caliber gun. It's with a 380. Okay, so I'm going to describe the scene a little bit. And it is unusual in some ways. Three of the girls are found together. And Amy's body was found away from the others. And there is a lot of debate about the location of Amy's body exactly and what that means. But regardless, because of the location of her body, she was far less burnt than the other girls. She had second and third degree burns on about 25% of her body. The other three older girls were burnt beyond recognition, with their fire being so intense that a gold cross that Sarah wore around her neck had melted. I mean, the girls' bodies were described as charred, and the actual physical removal of their bodies from the scene was very difficult. After the girls had been shot and they died, their killers moved their bodies. All three girls, Sarah, Jennifer, and Eliza, had been shot in the back of the head when they were laying face down. After Sarah had been shot, she was flipped over. Then we can tell this by the way the blood is on the gag that she is wearing. And Eliza's body was moved and stacked on top of Sarah's body. Both Sarah and Eliza were laying face up. Sarah's on the bottom, lying face up on top of her as Eliza also lying face up. Now, Jennifer was found laying very close to Sarah and Elizabeth's stacked bodies. Jennifer was found with one leg stretched out into the air, and something may have disturbed her, moving her from her original placement. It could be the ceiling falling in, causing the bodies to be moved. The water from the firemen's hoses also could have moved the bodies, but I don't think her leg position would have been altered like that. Also, girders fell from the ceiling, that really could have impacted the scene as well. An ice cream scoop was found laying on the ground between Sarah's legs. And frequently you will have people imply that the um, ice cream scoop, she's being sexually assaulted with an ice cream scoop. But that's not the case at all because firefighters and investigators, they believe that that scoop may have been moved to its position by water. So clearly it was not, it's loose on the scene. It's loose on the ground. Um, but there's speculation with how Sarah and Eliza are stacked and Jennifer laying on the floor near them that perhaps Jennifer had been laying also on top of Eliza and that she had fallen off the stack of the girls' bodies. Three of the girls had been gagged. Only little Amy hadn't been. It appears as if Amy had been treated differently than the other girls. Two of the girls were definitely bound. And this implies that the gagging came first before the binding had started. We have Sarah and Eliza. Their hands are bound. But Jennifer's hands were not tied. No binds were found unless they had been completely burned away, leaving no trace of ligatures. Then her hands were not tied. While her hands were behind her back, they were not close together. One is higher on her back while the other is much lower on her back. Both Sarah and Eliza had been tied up with their own undergarments. And Amy had a sock tied into a noose around her neck, almost like a collar. This was likely used to control her as she was assaulted. Oh, I want to go back. It seems like the body that was most burnt in the fire is Eliza. And I think if there's still evidence of her ligatures, of her being tied, I think that Jennifer's would not have been able to burn completely away, that something would remain there. But it's important that her hands were behind her back. They just weren't, they didn't look like they were, you know, tied closely together. 
Now, both Sarah and Eliza had been tied up with their own undergarments. And interestingly, Jennifer's hands were not tied. No binds were found around her wrists. Unless they had completely burned away, leaving no trace of ligatures, then her hands were not tied. And I think Eliza was the victim that had the most damage to her body from the fire. And I think if if there's ligatures remaining on her body, then I would doubt that Jennifer's, who was slightly less burnt than Eliza, that her ligatures would have completely burnt away, leaving no evidence of all of her being bound. Now, Amy, like I said, before, she was treated differently than the other victims. She was the only one that had no gag, and she also was not bound. But she had a sock tied into a noose, almost, around her neck, sort of like a collar. And this was likely used to control her as she was assaulted. All of the girls were completely naked, and their clothes were together in neat little folded piles. All of the girls had been shot in the back of the head with a twenty-two. Jennifer, Sarah, and Eliza were laying face down when they were shot. But again, Amy's situation is slightly different. It's widely believed that Amy was the last girl to be shot. And there is evidence of this as she has Jennifer's blood under her nails, which implies at the very least, Amy was shot after Jennifer. And Amy was definitely the last girl to die because there are smears of Amy's blood in various spots in that back room. As she died, little Amy, she crawled around the back room trying to escape. Like I said, the 22 didn't kill Amy at first. She was shot again with a 380. It's theorized that Amy, having seen the other girls being killed, she knew what was coming and she jerked her head when she was shot the first time and the bullet didn't penetrate her skull and a second shot was needed to kill her. Eliza, Sarah, and Jennifer were dead before the fire was started, but little Amy was likely still barely alive. There is some evidence people say that Amy was alive when the firefighters arrived on the scene but I can't really get that as being concrete because there was no attempt to make to remove her from the scene. So I don't know if she was still alive. It's just something you hear out there a good bit. I just don't know if there's really, if that's really the truth or not. Before they fled, the killers had started a fire. Now we don't know if an accelerant was used. Firefighters didn't note the smell of accelerant. We can't be positive either way. But once the fire spread to the metal rack that contained cleaning chemicals and styrofoam cups, the fire had found its own accelerant and the fire reached in incredibly high temperatures, almost destroying the crime scene. Maria Thomas, Eliza's mother, would refer to December 6, 1991 as the night they burned up my daughter. And this is where I'm going to leave. The next episode, we'll talk about all the customers that came in to the yogurt shop on the night of the murders and the four suspects that police eventually close in on.